All right, all right, all right, guys. I'm sorry. I know this is late. <laughs> um, I never really record podcasts this late, but I did not want to wait until tomorrow and not even give you guys a full day to ingest the technical breakdown for one of the best cards of the year and one of the best cards in UFC history in UFC 268, Usman versus Covington 2, which takes place Saturday, November 6th from Madison Square Garden in New York City. I guess we could call this MSG5, UFC MSG5, because it is the fifth event in Madison Square Garden in terms of pay-per-views. As far as I'm as far as I remember, 205, 217, 230, 244, and now 260. What is it? 268. God, I can't even remember the number. This is gonna be a great episode, guys, but um, I'm kind of just going to get into it, and no, there's not going to be a UFC 267 analysis. That'll be the next episode. Look for a UFC 268 analysis, and then another episode breaking down this weekend's card for UFC 268. But UFC 268, Usman versus Covington 2, you know, a great main card. Um, the triple header of fights is going to be uh, Usman versus Covington for the welterweight championship in the main event. Uh, and then you've got the rematch from UFC 245 back in December of 2019. That was when the first fight took place. And then you've got Rose Namajunas, the champion, who just won her belt by head-kicking Li Zhang with a lead left high kick in the first round of UFC 261. You've got the rematch between Zhang Li and Thug Rose Namajunas. That is a great fight as well. Then it was going to be the third fight down on the list, but I believe they did this because they want to give Coach Trevor Whitman a little bit of a break in between fights and not go back-to-back-to-back. Opening up the UFC 268 card is going to be a lightweight bout, probably one of the most explosive fights in UFC history between the two powerhouses of the UFC's 155-pound lightweight division. You've got the former lightweight title challenger who knocked out Dan Hooker in his UFC debut at UFC 257, and a man who was very close to finishing off the current UFC lightweight champion in Charles Dobronx Oliveira, former Bellator lightweight champion in Iron Michael Chandler, going up against the last, the man who fought Khabib in his final UFC bout, where he went to 29-0, the man who fought Khabib Nurmagomedov in his final mixed martial arts bout overall, in Justin the Highlight Gaethje, who had one of the best performances of his career at UFC 249, which was the first event back during back from the break when the COVID-19 pandemic really took off at UFC 249, where he dominated Tony Ferguson from bell to bell. But we've got a lot of great fights on there. I mean, the main card overall, like I said, this was going to be a triple header. But now we've got Gaethje versus Chandler opening up the main card, followed by, um, you know, you got Frankie the Answer, Edgar versus Marlon Chito Vera, battle between ranked bantamweights. You've got uh, ranked featherweight Hurricane Shane Burgos coming back after his loss to Edson Barbosa, going up against another buzzsaw and a great pressure fighter in Billy Quarantillo, who comes into this fight 16-3. and three. You've got, and then like we said, the two main events, and then on the prelims, you've got fights like Eli Quinta versus Bobby Green. You've got Alex Pereira making his UFC debut, the only man to ever knock out Israel Adesanya in his entire career back in kickboxing, former Glory World Champion, and Alex Pohatan Pereira. 
He's three and one overall as a mixed martial artist, and he's going up against a man who's somewhat new to the UFC, but a good test for his first fight in the organization in the Spartan Andres Michalaitis, who comes into this fight with a record of 13 victories and four defeats. You've got Edmund Shabazian versus Nazardine Imavov. Imavov, a training partner of Surreal Gone out there in Paris, France. Fantastic, fantastic fight between two amazing strikers. But what will really be the test? Um, what will really be the deciding factor in this fight? I believe it may not even have to do with the striking. But we're going to start it off on the prelims in the middleweight division, like we just said, with the number 11 ranked middleweight Edmund, the golden boy Shabazian, who comes into this fight with a record of 11 victories and two defeats, going up against Nazardine Imavov, who's coming off a fantastic second round KO over the Hurricane Ian Heinish. And uh, he is 10-3 and three overall in professional mixed martial arts. So Nazardine Imavov trying to break his way into the middleweight rankings against the number 11 ranked Edmund the Golden Boy Shabazian. Shabazian was 11-0 after he knocked out Brad Tavares at UFC 244. Phenomenal performance, a flawless performance, beautiful jab into a lead left high kick the jab hides the head kick as you try to slip off the center line um and then he comes in and he fights Derek Brunson gets dominated out grappled out wrestled out top controlled and just beat to a bloody pulp then he comes in against Jack Hermanson after being gone for a long time recovering from that vicious beating he took and he looks great in the first round landing beautiful one twos landing beautiful left hooks he's got a really good fade back left hook He's got a good left hook moving forward, good jab, always is really good at circling towards the weak side of his opponent. So normally he's fighting an orthodox fighter, right? So he's going to circle to the left side of his opponent because you do not want to circle into the right hand of your opponent. So you're going to circle to your, to your right. And you don't want to circle into the power hand. He's very good at circling off to the weak side of whoever his opponent is. He's very good at pulling you in. It's kind of like a push-pull fighter. He'll push forward with some good combinations. He'll pull back and try to drag you in to get caught with a counter shot as you try to come forward and counter him because maybe you don't feel like he's you know going to be able to land the power that he does possess at 185 pounds. Really, really good check left hook. He doesn't really throw it moving forward. He will if he hides it behind a jab, but normally if you come forward and try to crowd on him. Sorry, I got to make sure my microphone sounds good. Okay. Normally if you try to come forward and crowd on him, he's going to fade back and throw that left hook just to kind of check you, see where you are. That's why they call it a check hook. You can use it to pivot off and uh, you can use it to set up your power right hand. Um, both of these guys are fantastic strikers. You know, I, I don't think that either of them are miles ahead of each other when it comes to being on the feet. Um, I do believe that as the fight goes on longer, as it draws into the end of the first, into the second round, into the third round, I do believe that Imavov and his patient style of fighting, which comes from guys who train out of, out of France. And, you know, another guy in his gym in the interim heavyweight champion in Cyril Gan, he's very patient, very methodical, very tactical in his approach to the game of mixed martial arts. Excuse me. And I do believe that that's something we've seen from Amavov. He's very good and he's very good at kind of reading the fight. Yes. Sometimes he can let fights slip away from him. We saw it against Phil Hawes constantly getting out wrestled out grappled, taken down, but he can hurt you. He's got a beautiful jab and he's got a beautiful one too. And he can follow it up with a left hook. He can land combinations, really solid work from inside the clinch. That's something we're going to have to look out for against the golden boy, Edmund Shabazian. Um, he's going to look to land elbows off the break in the clinch, look to land knees, um, look to 
step forward from ortho into southpaw from orthodox and land a left knee as he's framing off. He's very good with frames, very good at maintaining the distance and controlling the range. I do think that Shabazian is good at that game as well, which is why I think this fight is so good. But Overall, I think something we saw against Ian Heinish, whether it be, you know, just a little bit of it, it doesn't matter. I think it's going to play a factor here. Um, is the counter wrestling of um, Nazardine Imovov? You know, he had a, so much trouble against a decorated wrestler in Phil Hawes, you know, just getting out, out muscled up against the fence, controlled, taken down over and over and over again. Even when he would go to land his punches, he would overextend, which would leave his hips open. Phil Hawes would shoot underneath the overextension and get the takedowns. I don't think Edmund's going to look to use a lot of his wrestling. He does have good ability to counter wrestle, and he does have some good scrambling ability. But I do believe that since it's going to be primarily on the feet, the fakes and feints, the patient forward movement of Nazardine Imovov is going to give Edmund Shabazi in a little bit of trouble. I think the first round's going to be very close, but I think we've seen that as the fight goes longer, Edmund Shabazian tends to tire out, and once he really tends to tire, that's when the opponent can take over with the grappling. I do think we're going to see a more grappling-heavy approach from Imavov here. I think he's going to start the first round off. It's going to be close on the feet. I think in the second round, he's going to look to push Edmund up against the cage. He might even stop some takedowns from Shabazian because Shabazian might look to mix it up, throw off the timing of Imavov, and use some takedowns, use some clinch control, use the over-under position push him up against the cage. I think we're going to see a lot of framing and elbowing in the clinch, even if it's Imavov whose back is to the cage. I think we're going to see a lot of elbows. I think we're going to see a lot of framing, working, trying to work some knees to the body, get Edmund's head off to an angle, frame off, and be able to get some torque and momentum into the knees to the body. I do think that's something that you definitely have to look out for here. And overall, I think that, I just think that Imavov is more patient on the feet. I think he's better when it comes to a full-on striking battle. I would give the power advantage to Shabazian, but I think the variety, the fakes, and the feints, and the overall mixed martial arts game of Amavov is much stronger when it comes to the clinch game, when it comes to takedowns. You know, stuffing a takedown, coming back, and shooting a takedown. And shooting a takedown off of a takedown of your opponent. That's something he did against Heinish. Heinish shot the takedown. He stuffed the takedown, turned the corner, and did a reshoot. You know, so he he stuffed the takedown and then shot a takedown of his own before Heinish was able to get his footing and his base back. So you they shoot the takedown on you. You turn the corner. You whizzer. You whizzer kick. You turn the corner. You get him off. And you immediately shoot a takedown of your own. They're not going to be in the correct stance. They're going to be on an awkward angle, and their stance is most likely going to be square. So as their stance is square, you reshoot, double leg, turn the corner, or you can single leg, circle off to the one side, circle, run the pipe, and then you know, why well, you wouldn't run the pipe in a single leg, but you can you can shoot a double, get your head off to the one side, head on the inside, single, switch it back to the double. You know, because they're not going to be in the correct stance when you do that reshoot. I think the grappling, I think the top control, and I think the striking of Imavov is going to get better and better as the fight goes on. I see this fight as being a very close first round, which may go to Edmund, but as it goes into the second and as it goes into the third, that's where I see Imavov being able to take over. That's where I see Edmund making more mistakes due to the fatigue that's going to set in from the clinch control, from the elbows, from the knees, from the constant, you know, pummeling and in hand fighting and the takedowns that I think Imavov is going to look to employ in this fight. So overall, 
I'm going to go with Nazardin and Mavov to get the victory over Edmund Shabazian, and I'm going to go with him to get the victory by a decision. I think Edmund drops three fights in a row. This is a kind of a must-win situation for Shabazian, you know, being a highly touted you know, prospect, uh, being pegged as a future middleweight champion for how young he is. If he loses here, all that kind of goes away. But I think Mavov was not a smart fight for him to take. Is it the hardest fight for him to take? No, but I think that he is not going to be giving Imovov enough credit here. And I think the coaching of Edmund Shabazian, I'm not going to throw shade at Edmund Tarverdian because, you know, Shabazian was undefeated at a point, as was Ronda Rousey, if you catch my drift. And um, I just think that he's not going to be able to get past Imovov. So Nasruddin Imovov to defeat the number 11 ranked Edmund Shabazian via a 29-27 unanimous decision. I think he gets a 10-8 in there with the grappling and um, being able to control the striking as the fight goes longer. Up next, you got a battle in the lightweight division with the return of Raging Al Iaquinta. Or Iaquinta. I think it's Iaquinta. I don't know why people say Iaquinta. So Raging Al Iaquinta coming back. Um, his last fight back at UFC 243, I believe where he lost a, a decision to Dan the Hangman Hooker. That's where Hooker really broke through and then would eventually get the fight against Dustin the Diamond Poirier. He comes into this fight with a record of 14 victories, six defeats, and one you no know, contest. He's going up against another veteran of the sport, um, a phenomenal boxer, one of the only people to employ the Philly Shell style into MMA and use it to the best of his ability. A man coming off a razor-thin split decision loss to one of the brightest prospects in the lightweight division in phenomenal Muay Thai striker and kickboxer, um, Rafael Faziv. That is Bobby King Green, who comes into this fight with a record of 27 victories, 12 defeats, and one no contest. You know, this is a fantastic fight. It's really, really just a solid it's really solid matchmaking, I would say. When you look at when you look at the UFC matchmakers, they make some questionable decisions, but this is one I think they hit right on the head. You know, Raging Ally Quinta has not fought since I want to say it was October 2019. Let's see. Look this up. Yeah, October 5th, 2019, that was at UFC 243. So, you know, it, it's over two years since Ally Quinta has been in the UFC. He wanted to step away. He wanted to focus more on his real estate. That is something he does, you know, on the side, but it's more of his full-time gig. But now he is making his return back to the UFC. You know, I Quinta, like I said before, he's a guy who gave Khabib one of his most competitive fights in his entire career. And I'm not saying early on he didn't have a competitive fight with Gleason Tebow. You know, we all know about that fight. That's one that's very highly uh, controversial and very highly doubted, as a lot of people thought that Tebow should have won that fight. But based on the newer and, and more recent run of Khabib, I think McGregor gave him one of his best fights. And I also think Iaquinta gave him one of his most competitive fights. He went all five rounds with Khabib on short notice when it was originally supposed to be Khabib versus Ferguson. Then we thought maybe Khabib versus Pettis, but the UFC wouldn't let that happen or the doctors in, uh, the doctors in New York. Cause I think it took place in Brooklyn. Wouldn't let that happen. So there was also the, <laughs> the scene of the famous McGregor Dolly throwing incident. If you're a, a hardcore fan, 
of MMA. I mean, even if you're just a casual, you should know what that is, but I'm not going to go into it right now. Um, Iaquint is a great fighter. You know, he's got a win over Kevin Lee, two wins over Kevin Lee, I believe. Yeah, two wins over Kevin Lee. Um, he had a fight against Donald Cerrone, which a lot of people thought he was going to run through Cowboy, but that was when Cowboy was making one of his final runs towards the lightweight gold at 155 pounds, and uh, Iaquinta just kind of got the the brakes beat off of him. I mean, Cowboy looked phenomenal in that fight. That is what I watched in the tape study leading up to this fight we're going to talk about. Um, he did okay against Hooker. Al Iaquinta did okay. You know, I think the calf kicks were a big issue for Iaquinta against a guy like Dan Hooker, who's long, he's rangy. You know, he's a kickboxer. He uses his length, he uses his reach, and he chops the legs inside and outside. Um, the kicking game is not something we're really going to see from a guy in Bobby King Green. I think the longer his career has gone on, people have gained more and more respect for him, which is something I definitely think is is deserved. Bobby King Green is a phenomenal boxer. He's a phenomenal overall mixed martial artist. We've seen him use some wrestling the longer his career has gone on. Um, he wrestled very well against, um, let me see, we can look this up because I can't think of fight but um he lost to Rafael Faziv prior to that he lost to Tiago Moises via decision the the Faziv fight was a razor razor thin decision very very close I did lean Faziv two rounds to one but if it went to Bobby Green I wouldn't have been upset um I think it was Alan Patrick it was at uh, UFC Fight Night Watterson versus Hill on September 12th, 2020. Bobby Green used his wrestling extremely well in that fight. He was able to land some good takedowns, land some good double legs, use some clinch trips, use some takedowns up against the cage. I did not watch the fight leading up to this one, but just going off what I remember, I remember that a lot of people were very impressed with the counter-wrestling and the overall wrestling game of Bobby King Green. I think that's something he's going to have to use in this fight, but more on a defensive measure, more of a defense, a defensive scale. He's not going to shoot takedowns against a guy in Raging Ally Quinta, but I don't expect Raging Al to shoot a lot of takedowns here either. I think that this is going to be a striking battle for as long as it lasts. You know, I do think that both of these guys are going to stand on the feet and they're both going to look to wing some heavy, heavy punches. But you have to look at it realistically. You know, it's been two years since Iaquinta has fought. I think um, a lot of people say ring rust is real unless you're Dominic Cruz. Um, but even he had some trouble going up against Henry Cejudo Triple C when he was on the shelf for two or three years. So, yes, it is true. Ring rust does give you some give you problems. And Iaquinta has been gone for so long, you know, over two years. And, and Bobby Green has been active. He's been active, you know, August, September, October 2020. Moises, Patrick, Venata, and then he goes in and he fights Rafael Faziv to a great fight against a guy who people thought were, was going to run through Bobby Green. A lot of people thought that, you know, Faziv was going to run through Bobby Green, but the constant stance switches, the shoulder rolls, the countering was on, was on point. And, you know, Bobby Green is so good at leaning in making you think that he's closer than he actually is, pulling away from shots, shoulder rolling, counter blocking on the other side with a high, a high guard, phenomenal Philly shell defense. And one of the only people we've seen besides Dustin Poirier use that Philly shell style of defense to the best of its ability when it comes to the mixed martial arts game. And, you know, I think that that type of defense, it is good for avoiding 
the looping shots. Straight punches are a little bit easier to get through if you set them up. So look for the straight left hand. Look for the straight right of Ally Quinta. Look for him to go double jab right hand, come over the top with the left hand. I do think that that's something we're going to see from Iaquinta. I do think we're going to see Iaquinta try to use a lot of fakes and feints, but Bobby Green is so calm, so patient, so poised in there. He's so loose in that cage that I think that's going to be a problem for you know, Ally Quinta. Yes, I Quinta is a good striker. He's got good punches, heavy power, good hooks. His best punches are probably his right and his left hook. When you come in, he'll try to rip it to the body and then come up top to the head. But those type of punches are going to be, you know, feed into the guard game of Bobby King Green when it comes to that Philly shell. You know, you might block the body with your elbow on the other side, come back and catch the hook on the top with, um, you know, the shoulder roll. When you go and you look at the UFC 199 fight between Bobby Green and Dustin Poirier, which is the last time that Bobby Green has, or the only time I believe that Bobby Green has gotten finished, but definitely the last time Bobby Green has gotten finished, um, Poirier was able to cut an angle on the shoulder roll defense of Bobby Green and then come over the top with, I believe, an overhand right because he switched from southpaw to orthodox, which is something that Poirier has obviously become very well known to do in his career and what's one of his best techniques that he uses currently. But I do think that Bobby Green is just going to be too patient. I think he's got too many weapons for Ally Quinta. I think the wrestling would be smart for Raging Ale to use in this competition and in this fight, but I don't think we're going to see Raging Ale try to use a lot of his wrestling here. It'd be very smart because it would throw off the striking game of Bobby Green, but I think it's going to be a striking battle. I think there are that Iaquinta will land some shots just because, you know, even though he uses the Philly shell and the blocking on the other side with the high guard, he is there to get hit sometimes. So I do think that some of the power of Iaquinta may be able to cause problems for Bobby Green if he gets caught on the chin. But I think Bobby Green's just going to cruise to a decision here. I think it's going to be 30-27. I think he uses that jab. I think he uses kicks and then pulls back his, his legs, switches stances, straight left hand. Boom, boom, boom. One, two, three. Straight left, switch into orthodox, right, left hook, overhand right, double jab, double jab, you know, front kicks to the body, constantly switching, moving. Um, he's very good when the opponent throws kicks to the body and against a striker in Rafael Fazeev for him to be able to do this for a lot of that fight, he was very good at evading a lot of the body kicks, evading a lot of the strikes that were coming back at him. And Raging Al's speed is nowhere near the level of a Rafael Fazeev. Yes, Fazeev did catch him, but what do you expect? You know, he did catch him with some good shots, but he was able to, you know, shoulder roll, high guard, shoulder roll, high guard, slip, slip, roll, catch him on the shoulder, catch a lot of shots from, you know, Fazeev, and then he'd come back, bop, 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 rip to the body, bop, 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 boom, boom, straight left, right hook. You know, he was coming back and firing combinations, and he was able to keep that gas tank up for 15 minutes. Going off of his last performance, how good he looked against Rafael Fazeev when nobody expected him to look that good. Going, basing it off of the activity that Bobby Green has had, basing it off of all those things, I think this is an easy 30-20, 30-27. Uh, yeah, I'm going to, you know what? I'm going to give, I'm going to say he he dominates. 30-27 decision, 30-27 unanimous decision for Bobby King Green over Raging Al Iaquinta. Um, I could see a 10-8 in there, but Raging Al's too tough, I think, to get a 10-8. So 30-27 for the favorite in Bobby King Green over the returning Raging Al Iaquinta. 
Um, the next fight up is the uh, final prelim we're going to be discussing. It's in the UFC's middleweight division. You've got the former glory kickboxing world champion. The man, the only man to ever knock out Israel Adesanya. He did it in kickboxing. I believe he was in orthodox through a right hand, stepped forward into southpaw and was able to catch Adesanya with a left hook as he was slipping off the center line and, uh, you know, kind of off on an angle. He caught him, dropped him, and knocked him out cold. Glory kickboxing world champion. He did lose his last fight in glory, but you cannot discredit this guy's striking ability. Even though this is his first fight in the UFC, I he is definitely one of the most dangerous strikers in the game of mixed martial arts and one of the most dangerous strikers in the UFC. Even though it's his first fight in the UFC, that is Alex Pohatan Pereira, who comes into this fight with a record of three victories and one defeat, going up against the Spartan Andres Michalaitis, who comes in Mihailidis, I think. Yeah, that's it. That's how you pronounce it. I'm sorry. It is the Spartan Andres Mihailidis who comes into this fight with a record of 13 victories and four defeats. I'm going to be honest. I, I've seen some people, you know, pick Andres Mihailidis to defeat Pohatan, Alex Pereira. I've seen some people pick him. You know, I think he's like a plus 250. He'll probably be close to a plus 300, um, you know, when the cage door closes and fight night is upon us. But you have to look at what you're given. And I do think that we've seen Pohatan get submitted in his MMA career. I think it was his first fight in MMA. He got taken down, got submitted, you know, kind of got dominated on the ground. I get it. But then he came back and he got three victories in a row. You know, Zhang Wei Li in her MMA career lost her first fight and then came back and I believe won 21 in a row. So, you know, yes, he lost his first fight. That was his first fight in a completely different sport with a completely different mix of discipline. What disciplines when he previously only had to focus on one discipline in his previous sport in glory kickboxing, where he was, you know, a world champion. Like we said, he only had to focus on boxing slash kickboxing. Now you have to go in, you got to focus on clinch work, which you do in glory. So I don't really consider that a huge adjustment for Pereira to make, but you have to focus on the wrestling. You have to focus on the Brazilian jiu-jitsu. You know, you have to focus on those and those on top of the boxing and the kickboxing and the Muay Thai are so much for those strikers to learn. We've seen Adesanya have trouble with the takedowns. You saw against Jan Blahovich. He did get taken down in in uh, the, the first fight against Marvin Vittori. He got taken down in the second fight against Vittori, but he didn't really he wasn't really able to do much with it. So these kickboxers, they do have a little bit of trouble with the grappling. Mihai Lidis does have good striking, but he is if he's going to win this fight, it's going to be with the wrestling, the grappling, pushing um, Pohatan, Alex Pereira, up against the cage, working in the clinch positions, the over-under, the double-unders, landing knees, elbows, kicks, you know, punches to the body, and then using the takedowns, trying to grind him out on the ground and open him up for a submission. Could it happen? Of course it can. Is it going to happen? No, I don't think so. I've watched the striking game of Mihailidis. He's got some good spinning wheel kicks. He does throw some wild kicks. That's not going to work against a guy like Alex Pereira. I mean, yes, if you set it up with the takedowns and the takedown feints, it's obviously more likely to land than if you would just throw it out in general. I do think that Mihailidis will land some good shots. I'm not going to sit here and completely discredit the guy. But the left hook of Alex Pereira 
He shut Justin Jacoby's lights out with it. He shut Adesanya's lights out with it. If he lands this left hook on your chin, it is perfect. It is clean. It is crisp. There's no wind-up in it. He doesn't fully wind up and throw it. He kind of just pivots on his lead foot, throws his shoulder into it, torques the shoulder, and lands that left hook. It's pu- It's beautiful. There's no complete wind-up. You know, leaning all the way over to your lead side and throwing the left hook. He's constantly, he's keeping it there. Right hand, boom. He just he just shifts into his left hook. It's very sharp. It's very crisp. It's very clean. It's just a little quick shift of the shoulders. You know, it's a sh- it's a quick. You know, it's not a. It's a. It's just a. You know, he's very close. He stands right there. Right hand, boom. Just just little brief shift into that left hook, little brief explosion, no wind up a lot harder for the opponent to see. He can use it off of a stand switch and throw it from a power side like he did against Adesanya in a, in a form or in some kind of way. Um, I think that Mihailidis throws wild looping punches. He uses these this brawling style on the feet to set up his grappling using that brawling style and shooting takedowns. Yeah. Maybe he, for the first minute, he does okay. But throwing those wild punches, it's going to leave your chin exposed. I think Pereira times him coming in with one of those looping shots, catches him on the counter with a left hook on the chin, and knocks him out cold. This guy's left hook is elite. It might be the best left hook in the game. If he catches Mihailidis at any point on the chin, he's going to knock him out. I just don't think that Mihailidis is good enough and can't use all of his MMA game good enough for 15 minutes to avoid it. I don't even think he can do it for five minutes. I'm going to go with Alex Pohatan Pereira to get the win off of countering a looping shot of Mihailidis with a counter left hook coming in uh, as he's stepping into range and knocking him out cold. So I'm going with the UFC debutant and former middleweight glory world champion and Alex Pereira to win his UFC debut via first-round KO with a left hook off the counter against Andres Mihailidis. All right, now we move to the main card. And originally, the first fight prediction for this main card was going to be Frankie Edgar versus Marlon Chito Vera. But Dana White announced today, I believe, that the opener of UFC 268 in Madison Square Garden in New York City is going to be the lightweight bout between Justin the Highlight Gaethje and Mike Iron Michael Chandler. Number two versus number four. The winner of this fight is either going to get the winner of Poirier versus Oliveira or get the man who is waiting in the wings, the man who some people have called the better version of Habib Nurmagomedov or Habib Nurmagomedov 2.0. In Islam Mahachev. A big fight, a huge fight, and a good fight for the fans. This fight is going to be a war. There's no way this fight goes to a decision. I don't even think this fight makes it out of the first round. Possibly maybe into the first two minutes of the second round, but I don't think it's going to happen. So the number two ranked Justin the Highlight Gaethje comes into this fight with a record of 22 victories and three defeats. Going up against the number four ranked to lightweight, the Last person to challenge for the UFC lightweight championship, um, the vacant UFC lightweight championship at the time against Charles Dobronx Oliveira and Iron Michael Chandler, who comes into this fight with a record of 22 victories and six defeats. This is a phenomenal fight, man. This is the people's main event. This is the fight that everybody wants to see when it comes to this card. 
it's just fantastic from top to bottom. There's really nothing you can discuss on this card that is going to get people as excited as Justin Gaethje versus Michael Chandler. If there's one fight on this entire card that I think people have talked about the most, it's Gaethje versus Chandler. And and with every right to be, you know, it's every right to be the most discussed fight on the card. 100%. But I don't think it's going to last long, and I don't even think it's going to be that close. I think stylistically the fight can be close, but I think when it comes to how the fight plays out, I think it's domination in one area for the winner. Um, if I'm going into this fight, you know, you look at Justin Gaethje's last fight against Habib Nurmagomedov. He comes in, does some decent work, but he just was always kind of, he was a little bit too overreactive against Habib. And everything that he threw, he never really had the ability to set his feet and throw a shot. There were a few times where he threw a good leg kick. He landed some good outside low kicks against Khabib, and uh, they seemed to hurt Habib a decent amount. He said he never has gotten hit as hard as Justin Gaethje has hit him, which just goes to show you how good you know Gaethje's power is. There was a point where he landed a right hand into a left hook and um, caught Habib on the chin, snapped his head back. Habib just walked through it and ate it. That was one of the single-handedly most perf- most impressive performances of Habib's entire career. Coincidentally, it was his last fight in professional mixed martial arts where he went to 29-0. Prior to that, Gaethje looked probably the best we've ever seen him in his entire career in his interim lightweight title-winning performance against Tony Ferguson in the first UFC event back from COVID-19 at UFC 249, which is one of the most stacked cards ever just go back and look at the card. Um, you know, Gaethje looked phenomenal against Tony Ferguson. He was timing him. He was using stance switches, shifting beautifully from orthodox to southpaw and following up with that left hook from southpaw. He would go one, two, shift his weight, step forward into southpaw, catch Tony Ferguson on the exit or catch him with his back turned to him as he tried to spin away from the attacks with a left hook. I I feel like Gaethje single-handedly destroyed the career of Tony Ferguson. It was that much of a one-sided beating. Yes, Ferguson did land a beautiful uppercut as Gaethje tried to throw an uppercut in the second round. His got there first. It dropped Gaethje, but Gaethje came back and dominated and got a fifth-round TKO. You know, this is a this is a phenomenal fight. That was one of the best performances of Gaethje's entire career, coincidentally under the wizard known as Trevor Whitman. And um, honestly, I, I wouldn't be surprised if either of these men knock each other out. If Michael Chandler knocks out Justin Gaethje with that left hook or that straight right hand, wouldn't surprise me one bit. We've seen that Justin Gaethje get, get stopped before. Once with a knee after, you know, Eddie Alvarez was working the body. He was working the body, working the body. Single collar clinch came up the middle with a knee, knocked out Gaethje. That was all set up with the body work. Against Dustin Poirier, timed a low kick, stepped into it, countered with a left hand down the middle, the straight left, hurt him, get, got him up against the cage, landed the uppercuts in the hooks like Poirier does in the combinations, and dropped him and finished him. He's never been knocked out cold. I think the first person who could ever knock Gaethje out cold is uh, Michael Chandler. I think he can put the the right hand on the chin, uh, the straight right, and knock him out. When it comes to who's the faster fighter, 
I think that that goes to Chandler. I do think that Chandler is the more explosive. I think Chandler has the quicker, the quicker punches. But when it comes to who's the cleaner striker, who's the cleaner fighter, who doesn't move as much but still gets where he needs to be, he doesn't overcommit to his movement, he doesn't overcommit to his stance shifts, he doesn't overcommit to the, the angles, to the footwork, it's Justin Gaethje. Um, I think that in this fight, it's going to be, you've heard all the time, straight punches beat looping punches. I do think that is going to be a narrative going into this contest. I do think we're going to see Chandler go to try to use his wrestling. Um, even if it's defensively or offensively, I don't think he's going to have nearly as much success as Habib Nurmagomedov did on the ground. I do think for Michael Chandler to win, if he wants to dominate, he should go to the wrestling often and go to the wrestling early. He should also work the body, work the straight right hand to the body. He has a beautiful straight right hand to the body, and he landed it very well on Dan Hooker in his UFC debut at UFC 257, even landing the right hook right straight to the body and shifting into southpaw to follow up with that beautiful stance shifting left hook that dropped Dan Hooker and looked like, you know, he got shot in the face with a 22 and, uh, you know, just sent him flying into the cage. Michael Chandler is fast. Michael Chandler is explosive. But Justin Gaethje sets his traps better, in my opinion. I think he sets traps with his footwork a lot better than Michael Chandler. I do think Michael Chandler is deceptively good at slipping his head off of the center line and using that to push you back and set a trap to then fire his power, whether it's a left hook, whether it's the straight right hand, whether it's the shifting left hook, which coincidentally Justin Gaethje is very good at as well. They both have a very good shifting left hook. Gaethje uses it better. I think he uses it when the opponent's more out of position, I think Chandler kind of tries to wing it in there a little bit more and he leaves himself open. There's a little bit more wind up. There's a little bit bigger steps when he goes to close that distance. Gaethje doesn't, doesn't do that. You know, training under Whitman, like we said, it's a lot of moving his head now, you know, hip fainting, hip bumping, shifting into, maybe you're in Southpaw, you slip your head off the center line, slip your head off the center line, hip bump with the right hip and then shift into, into orthodox where you can set up the left hook shift into orthodox, straight, j land the jab. He's got a beautiful jab. I think the jab of Gaethje can tell a big story in this fight, especially when it comes to using his best weapon in the fight, which what else did you think it was besides the low kicks? I think if he starts throwing empty low kicks, um, Chandler's going to try to time it and either enter into a body lock position and work his wrestling with those suplexes, you know, the Greco-Roman style of wrestling, or he's going to use it, time it, catch it, and shoot a double kind of like Islam Mahachev just did to Dan Hooker. Um, but I do think we're going to see a lot more traps set by Justin Gaethje. I do think that. I think that uh, Gaethje's going to be able to set more traps. Um, he's going to have Chandler overcommitting on a lot of his shots. I think he's going to have Chandler a little bit gun-shy when it comes to throwing his power. Um, and if he does throw his power, I think he's going to overcommit to it. And overcommitting on the power against a guy who's refined his striking and refined his technique with his hands as much as Justin Gaethje is a recipe for disaster. You know, Charles Oliveira landed a beautiful left hook. They both threw a right hand um, and slipped their head off the center line. But on the comeback, uh, Charles Oliveira's hook was cleaner. It was more concise. And it landed on the chin of Chandler, dropped him. He followed him up against the cage. He was running away. Boom, caught him with another left hook and got the finish. After a dominant 
first round for Michael Chandler. I wouldn't say dominant, so to speak, but, you know, he shifted in, shifted in. You know, he closes the distance. He steps forward into the opposite stance and, you know, moves forward and shifts his stance as he moves forward. He sets up the left hook. You know, he's very good with the teep kicks. Um, I think working the body, like I said, the straight right to the body, the jabs to the body. But that teep kick from Chandler to the body, that is, if he uses it off the front leg, um, it's going to negate some of the low kicking game of Justin Gaethje because if you go to use that lead teep kick to the body or front kick, your calf is not there to be kicked when, if the opponent tries to low kick. And if they try to low kick and you time it with a teep from the lead leg, it's going to be... Um, it's going to knock the opponent off balance. Knocking Gaethje off balance could lead into the wrestling and the grappling and potential submission game of Michael Chandler. I do expect him to shoot heavy on the wrestling. I don't think he's going to be that successful with it. I don't think anybody could out-wrestle Gaethje like Khabib did. If anybody can, it's Chandler. You know, If he goes out there, uses the wrestling, gets a double leg or a single leg, gets the back of Gaethje and, and goes to submit him, yeah, his ground game is not that great. But his takedown defense is not bad at all. It just didn't look very good against Khabib, even though he did stuff the first two or three takedown attempts. You have to remember, you know, he stuffed the first two or three, four shots from Khabib. Not a lot of people can even stuff one takedown from Khabib because he chains his takedowns well, so well together. He's such a good chain wrestler that it makes it harder for the, you know, to stop the takedowns when it's not one takedown, it's one takedown entry to enter into two, three, four takedown attempts until he eventually turns the corner and gets you down, gets you up against the cage, uses the Dagestani handcuff and the triangle leg mount, you know, all the stuff we've talked about, the body lock, sinking his weight forward, yada, yada, yada. Um, I don't think Chandler's going to have that much success with the wrestling against Gaethje. I really don't. Um, I just don't see it. And... I do think that if he uses that lead leg front kick or the teep to the body and then uses the straights to the body, it can set up a shot up top. And he can definitely knock out Gaethje. He's got the power in his hands. Michael Chandler can knock out just about anybody. Um, but I do think the longevity of this fight, the longer the fight goes, it plays into the hands of Gaethje. Gaethje's not a guy who gets finished. He's a guy who gets stronger as the fight goes on. Yeah, maybe it didn't look like that against Khabib, but go back and watch the Eddie Alvarez fight. Go back and watch the Poirier fight. Go back and watch the Michael Johnson fight. You know, you can rock him. You can hurt him. You can stun him a hundred times. He's still going to keep coming forward. He's going to try to chop your legs. He's going to get in close and try to try to rough you up. He's better now technically, and he's better now at setting things up, and he has a better mind and a better fight IQ now than he ever did because he started listening to the defensive advice from Coach Trevor Whitman. And I think the shifting, the angles, the shifting combinations, the clean, the cleanliness of his jab, the cleanliness of that beautiful left hook, the one, two, three, it's clean, it's quick, it's concise. Um, the combination punching goes in the favor of Gaethje 100%. The power, I do, exp I do think that raw power for power, Michael Chandler has more power. But I think that the clean shots of Gaethje timed with, or paired with how much power he does have, makes his power more effective than Chandler's power would be on Gaethje if he were to land. And I think we see the first calf kick that Oliveira landed against Chandler, it, it knocked him off balance. I think we see Gaethje use a lot of fakes. I think we see him fake use that hip feint to try to get Gaethje or try to get Chandler a little bit gun shy, get him to overcommit on a shot. Boom, counter him with the right hand coming in. 
over the jab. Um, you know, chop the inside low kick, chop the outside low kick. I think he works the low kicks very well in the first round. I think Gaethje does get taken down by Chandler after. Uh, as he shoots a takedown, as Gaethje throws a low kick. But I think Gaethje's able to use that wizard, use that wizard kick, get back to the double unders and get back up to his feet. I think he continues to chop the low kicks. I think he continues to throw that jab. Use those angles. Use that shifting. You know, use that lateral movement, hip bumps, feints, and uses that to set up the angles, the straight right hand into the shifting left hook as uh, as uh Chandler tries to get off on an angle. I think the low kicks makes Chandler stationary. He's on one leg. He's moving forward. He overcommits on a power shot. Gaethje counters with a 2-3, catches him with a hook, drops him, and knocks him out. So my pick is Justin, the highlight Gaethje, to defeat Iron Michael Chandler via a... Hmm, do I go first or second round? I never pick first round, so I'm going with the first round here. First round KO over Michael Chandler. Just hurting him with the low kicks early. It's not going to take many from Gaethje. Getting him to be stationary, getting him to hop, which is not causing him to set his feet. Can't set your feet. You can't get enough power. You're going to overcommit on a shot. Get countered, hit up top, and knocked out. So just in the highlight Gaethje to defeat Iron Michael Chandler via a first round knockout. All right, now we move to the next fight on the card, which is a battle that was supposed to open up the main card in the bantamweight division between the number eight ranked former lightweight champion, former featherweight top contender and title challenger, now bantamweight, longtime UFC veteran, number eight ranked Frankie the Answer Edgar. He comes into this fight with a record of 24 victories, nine defeats, and one no contest. He's going up against the tested... Number 13 ranked Marlon Chito Vera, who comes into this fight with a record of 17 victories, 7 defeats, and 1 no contest. Um, this is a close fight, and I know a lot of people are going to be completely sleeping on Frankie Edgar to win this one, just based off of how his last fight went. You know, getting that inside low kick thrown at him from Corey Sandhagen, and getting Frankie to circle right into that flying knee, Knocked out cold, vicious, vicious KO. I mean, it looked like Frankie got hit by a sniper and just collapsed. I mean, that flying knee was right on the chin, dropped and finished. But you look at what Corey Sanhagen has done, um, arguably winning a decision against TJ Dillashaw and Dillashaw's comeback fight. Um, that obviously wasn't the case, though, as the decision went to Dillashaw. Close fight. I'm not mad either way that it went. I did pick Corey in that fight, so um, that was one that they got me on. I was wrong there. Um, you look at Sandhagen's last fight against Piotr Jan. First round comes out. He looks great in the first round. Um, Jan obviously picked it up and won every round thereafter. Corey did look good in the fifth round, though. So you could have it 48-47, but I think 49-46 was the correct scorecard. So, you know, Frankie lost that. And then before that, he goes into his debut at 135 pounds, and he fights Pedro Munoz. And he wins a decision. I know a lot of people thought that Pedro Munoz did enough to win that decision. They thought that Frankie got hit too many times. They thought that Frankie didn't do enough. And they thought that overall damage and everything like that, that went to Munoz. So Munoz should have gotten his hand raised. I was not mad. I thought Frankie Edgar won that decision. I'm happy he got the nod there. Um, I don't think it was controversial. I think it was a close fight. And if a fight is close, 
you can't say that a decision is controversial because it could have gone either way. I, I could see how some people scored it for Pedro Munoz, but the speed, the combinations, the footwork, the movement, the evasiveness of Frankie Edgar is what you know scored him that victory. And I do believe he got a few takedowns in there as well on Pedro Munoz with his you know fantastic wrestling. You look at Marlon Vera; he's coming off a decision victory over the da- over dangerous Davy Grant. Um, a back and forth war, a three round fight, a decision. Um, Marlon did drop the first round, in my opinion. Davy Grant was very good at switching to southpaw with that right hook and then throwing the straight left hand or the left overhand. He would throw it like a hook or a straight. Mainly Davy's punches were looping. There wasn't a lot of straight punches that he would throw. It was a lot of switch step right hook into the left hook, um, right and left hooks up top, trying to land some kicks off the off the punches. So he would punch and then set up kicks. He would try to enter the distance and close the range. I'm sorry, enter range and close the distance with those kicks as well and then follow up with punches up top. But Marlon Chito Vera was able to take over the longer the fight went with his grappling, with his vicious elbows, which I think are going to play a factor in this fight against Frankie Edgar. He's got vicious elbows up the middle. You see him frame off the head, throw an elbow, frame off the head, throw an elbow. He's very good at catching you with the elbows coming in. He's got a very solid and I believe underrated kicking game. Um, You've seen him land high kicks and get KOs before. You've seen him land vicious low kicks like the ones he landed against Sean O'Malley, which I don't want to get into that because I've talked about that fight over and over again. He beat Sean O'Malley. Don't give me that bullshit of Sean O'Malley's still undefeated. He's not. He beat O'Malley fair and square, hurt him with the calf kicks, got on top, um, took advantage of a position when O'Malley fell off balance because he got pushed off balance, but also because he wasn't able to balance because of the calf kicks that Cheeto Vera was landing. He got in the guard and landed vicious elbows and a hammer fist and knocked him out, but O'Malley came back quickly. You know, I'm not the biggest Sean O'Malley fan. I do respect his skills. I do think that he is a good striker. He's got good movement, good range, good angles. He can catch angles and, and land some vicious combinations and, you know, punctuate his combinations with the kicks. But you know, I think this fight is going to be very telling because although a lot of people are going to be counting out Frankie Edgar, I think out of everybody at the 135-pound division, Marlon Chito Vera is the most favorable matchup for Frankie Edgar out of that top 10 or top 15, I guess, because Marlon's ranked 13. So top 15, I think that Marlon Vera is the most favorable matchup and mainly because he doesn't use a lot of footwork. You know, Marlon isn't the guy who's going to cut a lot of angles. He's going to use a lot of pivots. He's going to walk forward. He's going to get in your face. He's going to high guard. He's going to try to move his head a little bit. And then he's going to try to counter you with punches. He's got a very, very clean right hand. Sometimes he kind of seems to push the right hand where it's not a completely snapping punch, but he'll push it. He'll kind of catch your lead hand, catch your lead hand, slap slap your lead hand to get you into position, and then fire that right hand, kind of like a karate right hand. Like if you look at a lot of the old school karate guys where they just shoot the right hand down the middle, but it doesn't look completely clean. Um, he'll kind of just try to, he'll shoot the right hand down the middle and, um, you know, that's one of the counters he likes to use. He likes to play with the opponent's hands. He likes to use a lot of hand traps. He's very good from inside the clinch. Um, you got to look out for knees. You got to look out for elbows. If you go back and watch the fight against Song Yadong, he was able to use the head and arm control in the clinch, land knees, land elbows, and, um, you know, land good strikes off the break. That was another controversial decision that a lot of people believed 
Um, Marlon Vera should have got the nod in, but the decision went to Song Yudong. Originally, I thought that Marlon won. I still think he should have got the nod, but again, close fight. Uh, I'm not mad that they gave it to Song Yudong. I do think that Cheeto did enough to win, but like I said, I'm not mad that he got that decision. Um, you know, I, I just think that here's what the thing is. You know, Frankie got knocked out viciously. He's been knocked out a lot more in his career recently. All of his recent losses have come by way of knockout. The Korean zombie knockout, you know, dropping him with the left hook and then jumping on his back, flattening him out and laying in the ground and pound and then hurting him up on the feet again. You know, you've got the Corey Sanhagen flying knee knockout, which is his most recent loss. That was at 135 pounds. Prior to that, he gets that decision in a close, tough fight with Pedro Munoz, but he showed he still got it. You know, Frankie can still go. He's still got the speed. He's still got the angles, the footwork, the bop, 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 bop. He's got good boxing combinations, good, clean, crisp technique. He doesn't really wind up on a lot of his punches. It's a lot of straight one-twos, um, landing hooks, pivoting off with the hooks. When you go back to uh, 145 pounds, you know, he got knocked out by Brian Ortega. It's just a lot of his recent losses has come by way of KO, and I think it's mainly because of how long Frankie Edgar has been in the game. You know, he's been around for a very long time, and, you know, eventually those wars catch up with you. He, he's been notorious for getting dropped in his career, but he always was able to come back from it. Now it just seems like it's a little bit harder for him to come back after he gets hurt, after his chin gets tested. It seems like, you know, that's kind of it, and, and, and it's sad because it's not sad, but, you know, I love Frankie Edgar, but he's just at the tail end of his career and there's really nothing you can say more about it. And you look at Marlon Vera, he did fight against Jose Aldo. Um, he did have some good showings in there, but a lot of body work from Aldo, the left hook to the body, ripping the combination of the one, two left hook to the body, right low kick. Um, he was able to find a way to take Cheeto's back. And once he got his back, it was kind of a wrap for that round. You know, Marlon couldn't get him off of him. And, you know, Marlon Vera has been taken down in some of his other fights. I do think that if Frankie Edgar is going to win this fight, it's going to be by constantly fainting and faking and fainting, using the lateral movement, faking the step in, then stepping in with the one, two, faking the step in, two, three, pivot off. As Marlon turns into you, then you shoot the takedown. You do the head on the inside single, trans switch to head on the outside and, you know, shoot the double leg and run the pipe. If Frankie, you know, shoots these takedowns, and constantly tries to keep Marlon up against the cage, I do think he can win. He's got to land the combinations, get on his bicycle the whole time, use the fakes and feints to set up the takedowns, get Marlon to overcommit, shoot in on a, on a lazy leg kick that he may throw, and uh, you know get the takedowns and get the top control. He kind of has to fight it similar to a Yair Rodriguez. You know He's got to push forward, get in the face, get the wrestling, get the takedowns, get the top control, and get the dominance there in order to win. Because we have seen that Marlon does have some trouble with the grappling, you know, throughout his career. But Marlon Vera is a good submission artist. He does have good top control. You look at the fight against Davy Grant. Um, you know, he's gotten submissions in his career before. I believe he's gotten a triangle arm bar. Um, I believe he's also locked up an arm bar on somebody else earlier in his career in the UFC. I think he switched from a triangle to an arm bar and got the opponent out of there pretty quickly. I can't remember the name, so forgive me, but I honestly think that the longer the fight goes, it's going to get more and more in the favor of Marlon Vera. I expect him to probably lose the first round just because of the speed, the footwork, and the movement of Frankie, but the more he pushes it back, I don't think Frankie has the gas tank 
to push those 15 minutes. And I know that sounds kind of crazy because he has pushed 25 minutes hard before. But like I said, later on in his career, you know, harder fights get harder and harder. And, you know, the chin isn't there anymore. His durability is questionable now. And I think that he's going to be able to push, you know, Frankie back. I think he's going to land that right hand up top, land the good combinations. I think he's going to chop the low kicks on Frankie, but he's going to set it up with the hands so he can't time it to get the takedowns. I think that he's going to do a lot of damage in the clinch. You know, those elbows, whether it was an up elbow or a regular elbow, um, they did a ton of damage to Davy Grant. They did some good damage to Song Yudong as well. And I think elbows up against the cage, knees to the body, controlling in the over-under, controlling in the tie plum, you know, hand hand on the bicep, single collar clinch, you know, controlling the bicep and landing those knees and elbows up top. I think he's going to cut Frankie Edgar. I think he's going to hurt him. And I think he's going to take over and win rounds two and three decisively, but potentially getting a 10-8. Um, in that third round, just because I think he's going to really put the damage on Frankie the longer the fight goes. But I think Frankie starts off good early. I think he starts off strong and maybe banks the first round. I'm going to go with Marlon Chito Vera to get the win over Frankie Edgar via a 29-27 unanimous decision. Two rounds to one, getting a 10-8 in the third round um, and moving his way up, cracking that top 10 finally at 135 pounds. Up next, we've got a battle in the featherweight division between the number 14-ranked Hurricane Shane Burgos, who comes into this fight with a record of 13 victories and 3 defeats, going up against Billy Quarantillo, who comes into this fight with a record of 16 victories and 3 defeats. Um, phenomenal fight here. I mean, 100% a great matchup between two really, really tough guys. Both of these fighters love to push the opponent back, get in the opponent's face, and make the opponent wilt to their pressure. Um, you look at Quarantillo's last fight against uh, Gabriel Benitez, I believe. I think that's who he beat in his last fight. Let's check that out just to make sure. Yeah, so he got the third round KO over Gabriel Benitez, actually getting taken down, but you know, landing elbows and punches off of his back and actually stopping the opponent from his back. One of the only times you'll see somebody stop an opponent with strikes from their back. Another person who did it was Uriah Hall on the ultimate fighter. If you go back and watch that season, he was able to hurt somebody from their from his back with punches and then eventually move over into top position and uh, land vicious ground and pound. So if you go back and watch the fight with Uriah Hall and let me see, who was that fight against? Check this out really quick. Let's see. Um, it doesn't look like... I can't find it, but if you go back to Ultimate Fighter 17, um, that was the season with uh, John Jones and Chael Sonnen as the coaches, you'll find it. But he, he lands some good strikes from the back, hurts the opponent, but then moves into top position. Billy Quarantillo was able to just pepper him from his back and finish him off of his back, and the ref stopped it. Just constant pressure and elbows and punches. Both of these guys, like I said, they're pressure fighters. They're not going to get tired. 
Hurricane Shane Burgos and Billy Quarantillo is going to be a war for as long as the fight lasts. And I 100% believe that. I think this could be your fight of the night, 100%. But it's going to be hard to top some of the other fights on the card, especially that main event when I get into the breakdown on that. But, you know, I think the way this fight goes is Quarantillo is good with his boxing. He's good with knees. He's good with working inside the clinch. He's got good wrestling and good takedowns. He's got a very good mount. That's something I think we're going to have to look out for here. He loves to go high mount. You know, there's a low mount where you grapevine the legs and you flatten the opponent out when you're on top. But then there's the high mount, which is where you get control of the head. You you sneak your knees up to underneath the armpits, and then you get into mount. So now they don't have as much space. They have to worry about shrimping their hips to get their arms out, then pushing your hips back. And potentially, you know, they can go for a butterfly guard, they can go for a butterfly sweep, they can go for the ashigarami, you know, trying to set up a heel hook as they push off on your hips and elevate you. But now you have to worry about a lot. It's a lot harder to get out of a high mount than it is to get into a regular mount or a low mount because you have to, you know, there's so much closer to you, there's so much less space. Your arms are forced to be either extended straight up, which can set up arm bars, arm triangles, etc., or you know, you're forced to shrimp or, you know, move your hips back and forth, you know, left and right, shrimping your hips to try to then get to a regular mount, to try to then get to a half guard, to try to then get to a half guard sweep or try to get to a shrimp, um, you know, shrimping your hips out, getting the underhook and getting back up to your feet or sweeping to get in top position. But um, when you look at the game of Shane Burgos, he's a phenomenal boxer. He's very, very good. Um, he likes to fight with his hands down a lot. That is something that has cost him in fights like the fight against Josh Emmett, you know, in the fight against Edson Barbosa, and the fight against Kelvin Cater. You know, he fights with his hands down, and he starts off with his hands low, but, you know, the longer the fight goes, when he gains confidence, he's constantly moving his head off the center line. He's the one-two following up with a high kick on the same side, switch stance, right hook, straight left, right hook to the body, you know, one-one-two, one-two-three, hook off the break and pivot. He's got very good boxing. Burgos has some of the best boxing in the featherweight division alongside Kelvin Cater and also has some of the best boxing in the UFC. You look at his last fight against Edson Barbosa, he looked good early on, but the speed and the power of Barbosa just seemed to be too much. You know, Barbosa was extremely fast. He timed the jab of Shane Burgos, slipped inside of it and came over the top with the overhand right. And it was a delayed reaction. Burgos backed up, acted like he could eat it, fell back into the cage. Barbosa jumped on him, landed one more strike, and that was the end of the fight. The, the other strike was not needed. I think that Burgos would have gone out. It was just a delayed reaction. And, um, you know, I think that is going to affect the durability, you know, going off of that fight. And then you go into the fight that he had against Josh Emmett, which was a war for 15 minutes. But, you know, Emmett landed, I think, three knockdowns. It might have been two um, I think it was three knockdowns, though. Um, if there was no knockdowns, I think, you know, Burgos would have won the fight, but the knockdowns sealed it up for Josh Emmett, just constantly timing the jab overhand right. It's because Burgos doesn't move his head, and if he does, he doesn't move it well enough to avoid people who are extremely fast with the boxing technique. I don't consider Billy Quarantillo a fast striker. He's got a good one-two, good uppercuts. He likes to one-two shift stance into southpaw, throw the overhand left, if he's in southpaw, he'll throw the, the cross, the 1-1-2, one, one, shift into orthodox, throw the overhand right. Um, he likes to go with the straight and then follow up with the lead uppercut. 
and uh, then he'll get you into the clinch. That's where he ties up in the in the tie plum or the single collar clinch. He'll land the knees to the body. He'll land elbows. He'll get you up against the cage. He'll try to get takedowns. Billy Quarantillo has to make this fight dirty. He has to stay in the face of Burgos for 15 minutes. He has to push him up against the cage, tire him out, land knees to the body, knees to the thighs, elbows over the top, you know, and he just has to not stop fighting. And, you know, that's something that Quarantillo does in all of his fights, even in the fight against Gavin Tucker at UFC 256, which he lost via 30-27 unanimous decision. Uh, he still kept fighting the entire time. He got tired in the second and the third round. Um, that is something that he does push the pace, but if you're able to get off on him, if you're able to, you know, land some punches and get some takedowns and and land good striking and, and land good strikes and good combinations and mix in your wrestling, in that fight, he just really could never get it going. He did land some good shots, like I said. He's, he's going to land on Shane Burgos. Both these guys are going to go to war. Um, they both have great cardio. But here's the thing. Quarantillo's got a good one too. You know, he's got good a decent straight right, a good, you know, straight punch. He's got good uppercuts, which is something I think you're going to have to look out for. The most dangerous spot for Quarantillo in this fight is going to be up against the cage in the tie plum or in the single collar clinch with the bicep control. Um, you know, he's going to want to tire Burgos out up against the cage, land those knees, land knees up top, land elbows, land one twos, you know, get your shoulder into Burgos's chest and get your head on his chin and grind into it, you know, shoulder roll off and land that uppercut up the middle control, uppercut, uppercut, left hook, uppercut, right hook, knees to the body. He has to make it dirty and he has to make Burgos wilt to his pressure. Problem is, I don't think Burgos is going to wilt to anybody's pressure. I think Burgos is the way better technician when it comes to technical fighting. I think that his striking is a lot better technically. It's a lot crisper. It's a lot cleaner. It's straight punches. And, you know, you hear it all the time. Straight punches beat looping punches. Shout out to Weasel MMA. Um, hopefully I get him on the podcast one day or we can collaborate on some fight picks. But straight punches beat looping punches. The jab, the one-two of Burgos. The left hook off the cross, you know, he'll throw the cross follow up with the left hook, the one, two into the high kick. He's very good at working the body. He likes to throw that uppercut to the body, one, two hook to the body, right uppercut to the body, shifting stances, right uppercut to the body, one, two high kick, switch stance, straight left. He's very good at mixing up his combinations. And once he gets into a rhythm, he can flow from the next move to the next move to the next move to the next move. And I think that once he starts building on, on Quarantillo, the pace and the pressure and the combinations are going to get to him, and you're going to see a lot more holes in Quarantillo's game. You saw it exposed against Gavin Tucker. I think we see it exposed even more here in the mid in the second half of the second round, or after the midway point of the second round into the last round. I think that that's where Burgos really takes over. I think the boxing is going to be a big factor for him against Quarantillo. He's going to land the one-twos. He's going to fire off that jab, land the hook. Um, he's going to land some good low kicks. He had very good low kicks against Josh Emmett to the inside and outside of his leg. Um, I think you're going to have to look out for that against Quarantillo, chopping the inside, chopping the outside of his lead leg, depending on what stance he's in. Look for him to go across the legs with the low kick, follow up off the low kick with a hook, set up the hook to set up the low kick, one, two, hook to the body. Um, I think he's going to use a lot of his combinations. I think he's going to really just use that cardio. We saw it against Makwan Amir Khani, and that, that's another reason I'm really going heavy in the favorite of uh, in the favor of Shane Burgos, is because you know he got out wrestled in the first round. He got outpowered up against the cage, out grappled 
And as the fight went on, he just continued to move forward. He continued to use that Terminator quality that he has, but he had good technique with everything that he was throwing. He can get hit. He doesn't have the best defense. Quarantillo does have power, but I don't think he has enough power to knock out a Shane Burgos or wobble him. And I know he got knocked out by Edson Barbosa, but Barbosa and Quarantillo are a different kind of fighter. Um, Quarantillo doesn't have the same power as a Josh Emmett, as an Edson Barbosa, as a Kelvin Cater. Um, maybe he can hurt him in the midpoint of an exchange and, and wobble him. I don't think so, though. I think that Burgos has the durability. I think you're going to see him push the pace. Like I said, in the midway point of that second round and into the third round, he's going to push the pace. He's going to push the opponent back. He's going to work to the body, look for a lot of body work, look for the low kicks, look for that to set up the boxing combinations on the feet, and then also look for the boxing combinations, the crisp jab, the one-two, slip the head off the center line, cross hook. That's going to set up the low kicks as well. And um, I think Burgos gets a dominant decision here. I think it's a close fight, but I think it's a clear decision for Shane Burgos. I think we get a, I'll give Quarantillo the first round. Maybe he gets off to a good start. Um, 29-28 unanimous decision for Hurricane Shane Burgos here. Um, you know, Billy Quarantillo doesn't get into the rankings quite yet. All right, all right, all right. And now we move to the co-main event of the evening. The rematch for the 115-pound Women's Strawweight Championship. Who will hold the crown and be the queen of 115 pounds at the end of the night? You've got the champion, Thug Rose Namajunas, coming into this fight with a record of 10 victories and 4 defeats, going up against the number one ranked former champion who lost her title to Rose Namajunas in Zhang Magnum Wei Li, who comes into this fight with a record of 21 victories and two defeats. This is a great fight, 100%. Um, I'm going to be on the edge of my seat. I think everybody is going to be on the edge of their seat for this, this contest. But we're going to start off and we're just going to talk about the first fight very quickly. You know, UFC 261, so many people doubted Thug Rose. So many people. I don't think I saw maybe more than 20% of people picking Rose. Uh, you know what? I'm not going to go that low, but I'd say it was probably 35-65. 65-35 in the favor of Wei Li to beat Rose, you know? And you go back and you look at my predictions, and this is not to toot my own horn. I just want to bring it up because it's relevant to the discussion we're about to have. You know, I, I go back and you you go back and you watch the Zhang Wei Li and Yoanna and Jacek fight. And she was vulnerable to that left high kick, whether it was the rear foot from the southpaw stance or from the lead side. She got hurt with a left high kick against Joanna, and that's what stunned her. Yes, she did get hit with a headbutt, so I'm sure that definitely aided in her being rocked towards the end of that, I believe, the second round. It was either the second or the third round in their fight at UFC 248, you know. But, you know, she got hurt a lot in that fight and you know she got wobbled by the high kick and then you go and you look at the rose fight and she th Whaley throws a lot of the same combinations and that doesn't mean that she's not a good clean technical striker she is she's a great striker she's got good power she's got very good explosiveness in the right hand it's clean it's crisp it's technical um she could set it up with the one two down the middle and if it lands on anybody's chin at 115 pounds uh, i think that it that they're in trouble you know rose being the champion, whether the champion or not, I still think if she lands that on the chin over and over, it's going to be a problem. 
And you look at the first fight, you know, Rose is constantly faking and fainting. She's shifting the stances. She's she's circling left, then briefly, briefly circling right to then open up the path to exit out on the left. You know, she's constantly using the lateral movement, using the in and out, using the fakes and feints. She likes to use a lot of hand fakes and shoulder feints, you know, lifting up the leg to fake like it was going to be a low kick, and then you throw the lead high kick with that same leg. So... Make the opponent think, make Wei Li think it's going to be a low kick. You could see in the in the lead-up to the fight, she was training with Senchai, who's probably the best kickboxer in the world. And she was using that pull-back low kick defense where you, 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 know, you bring the lead leg back, you pull your hips back, and you lean forward. It makes the kick go right by you, but you, are, you have to bank on that kick being low 100%. Because if that kick goes to your head, you're leaning into the kick. You're leaning into the kick and you're going to get hit with it flush because you don't have your hands up. Your hands are extended. You're pulling your hips back. If you lean into a high kick like she did against Rose, it snuck right up. It snuck right up on the trajectory in between her hands, in between her hair, her shoulder and her neck and her head. And it clipped her right on the chin. It was perfect. It looked like it was going to go low. She changed the trajectory of the kick, landed it up top. Whaley falls backwards, folds like an accordion. Rose jumps on it, and we get a replay of UFC 223, or I'm sorry, UFC 217, and and new, you know, Thug Rose, baby, Thug Rose. But I'm gonna be honest, like this is a dangerous fight for both girls. You know, I I don't, I'm not gonna 100 saying that Zhang Whaley is just a bum and and Rose is gonna run right through her. You can't say that because Zhang Whaley. You know, she was 21 and 1, I believe, going into that fight against Rose Namajunas at UFC 261. You know, lost her first fight, won 21 in a row, knocked out Jessica Andrade early. She was overcommitting on her punches. She was wild, looping punches, and she countered with the straight hand, moved her backwards, got in the clinch, landed knees and elbows, and finished her off. And and that was it. You know, she won her won the women's strawweight title. She won it in China. And, you know, she was China's first ever UFC champion. And she's a phenomenal striker. She's a good grappler. She's got very good head and arm throws from inside the clinch. Look for her to tie up the head and the arm and uh, use those hip tosses if they get into close range. But I would not venture her. I would not say it would be wise to grapple with the champion in Rose Namajunas. You do not want to grapple with her. I think that Whaley is definitely the stronger fighter. In terms of body-to-body, in terms of clinch positioning, in terms of over-unders and double-under clinch positions and holding her up against the cage, I do think that Whaley is the stronger, more powerful fighter. I think that's that's 100% for, you know, the case. But, you know, Whaley does a lot of the same things. And if you watch the fight with Rose, the first one, no matter how quick it is, and then you go back and you watch the Joanna and Zhang Whaley fight from UFC 248, do yourself a favor, go back and rewatch that fight. It was a lot of the same stuff. You know, Whaley started off, she threw a one-two into a lead body kick. She did the same thing against Joanna over and over and over again. It was a one-two switch lead body kick. And you saw Rose circled away from the right hand and then circled back the other way to avoid the lead body kick. The thing is that everybody's talking about, and they have a right to talk about it because of how the second fight with Joanna went, is the inside and outside low kicks. When you're an orthodox against the orthodox fighter in Zhang Weili, she is going to look to throw that lead inside low kick, and it's going to drag your lead leg towards her rear power side. It's going to drag you towards your weak side, 
and it's going to drag you into the right hand. A lot of the times, Zhang Weili will counter, maybe slip the jab, slip the cross counter with an inside low kick. Um, she uses that one to, to land the counters and obviously damage you, damage your wheels so you can't move as effectively, which is a good weapon against Rose. But she does it also to drag you into the path of that power right hand. When you throw that inside low kick and you move the opponent just slightly over to their lead side, you're moving them a little bit closer to your power hand. So it's pop, pop, right hand, lead, low kick, drag you in, boom, fire with the right cross. That's what she likes to do. That's what she's trying to do, and that's what she's trying to set up. And I think we will see Whaley go to the low kicks, but she can't go to them too often, and she can't go to them over and over again too early because Rose is an expert at making reads. She's very good at reading the opponent and finding her way and finding the counters to land on your chin. She's very good. Rose Namajunas is one of the best mixed martial artists in the world and definitely one of the top five women's MMA fighters of all time. She's my favorite fighter in terms of, you know, women's mixed martial arts. She's definitely one of my favorite. Number one, um, one of my favorite fighters ever is Thug Rose Namajunas. And, you know, I don't want that to go, I don't want that to seem like I'm picking on my heart and my emotion when I make the pick for this fight, which is why I want to explain everything to you. You go back and you watch the Joanna fight. Joanna was able to land a lot of one-twos. And, you know, Wei Li was, you know, throwing a lot of hooks. It was a lot of one-two, or she would throw an overhand or throw a left hook. She's got a beautiful left hook, which is something Rose is going to have to look out for on the counter. Um, if she gets hit with that left hook, it could be all, you know, lights out. She did get hurt by Jessica Andrade in the rematch, even though Rose won that fight decisively. I thought she won at least two out of three rounds, maybe all three. But, um, you know, Andrade was using a lot of head movement. She was using a lot of, you know, Mike Tyson, Bob and Weave, head off the center line, switching her stance, moving forward. And, you know, Rose was constantly just getting on her bike, moving left and right, shifting her weight, popping the jab, popping the right hand, shifting her hip in, pulling back, you know, triangle step, angle, pivot off. You know, she was always kind of making, being the matador to the bull in Jessica Andrade, but Andrade was pushing pushing the pace a little bit more in the rematch, which made it harder for Rose to find the timing and find the openings, but she landed the jab a lot. She's got a crisp jab. That jab's going to give Whaley trouble in the rematch, 100%. I think that that jab gives everybody trouble, but if Whaley can time it, slip on the inside and land the counter, that's where it's going to be a problem for Rose, but overall, I see Wei Li going to the well with a lot of the same combinations over and over again. Wei Li does not move her head. Eventually, you know, every once in a while she'll slip her head off and land a hook. But every time she throws her punches in conjunction with each other in a combination, her head is always on the center line after the second, the third punch. You know, it's one, two, three, four, but it's one moving her head in and then it's head on the center line for every strike thereafter. And keeping your head on the center line against a girl who's got as good a footwork as Rose, who's got a good jab like Thug Rose, who's got the fakes and feints like Rose, it's going to eventually lead you to get caught. You know, I could see this being exactly like the Joanna and Rose double feature. You know, Rose wins the first fight by a beautiful KO. And then the second fight, the low kicks add up. She still wins the decision and finds a way to get that takedown at the end of the round where she shifted into southpaw, wrapped around the lead leg, and uh, got the takedown up against the cage in the fifth round, and she won the decision 48-47. I think somebody might have scored it 49-46. I could be wrong, but I do believe that's how it got scored. 
And I could see this going five rounds. I 100% could see it. But honestly, I don't think Whaley is nearly as good as Rose in terms of technical ability, in terms of her awareness with, with the distance and the range management and the footwork and the movement. I think that Whaley's going to be chasing a lot of this fight, and that's eventually going to lead to open counters. And another thing you have to look out for is this, you know, oh, I had something in my head and it just left me. Hold on. Let me think. Let me think. Um, we talked about the clinch. We talked about the striking, the pivots, the footwork, the kicks, everything like that. Um, I can't remember what I was going to say. <laughs> I'm sorry. Let me think. So, I mean, I guess just overall, I do think that the grappling, if it stays on the ground, even if Whaley's on top, I think that Rose is going to probably be able to find a submission. So I don't think Whaley is going to want to stay on the ground for too long with Rose. And, you know, I think, I think, I guess, you know, you just look at the fight overall and Whaley's very good. She's, she's 100% committed. You know, she's training over at Fight Ready now, which is a very highly touted gym. She did make a change in the camp. So I do think that that is a big, you know, weapon for her. So we'll see if it's a new and improved Zhang Weili. But, oh, I remember what I was going to say. Thank you. That actually helped me. <laughs> I'm glad I remembered that. So we talked about Fight Ready. You know, she's at a new gym. She's at Fight Ready for this camp. And the thing is, you're not going to be able to make the adjustments with the fakes and the fainting and, and you know, managing the distance and judging the distance and the timing and the range that quickly. You know, 261 to 268, you know, seven months in between, I believe. That seems like a long time, but it's really not. And, and you're going in against a girl who knocked you out early in the first round. You didn't have really a lot of time to get the reads on Rose Namajunas. You didn't have a lot of time to get the reads on her combinations, on her footwork, on her faking and fainting, on those hip feints, on those stutter steps to fake into range and then step into range with the one-two. Faking, stepping in, leaning over the lead leg. You know, leaning over the lead leg, faking the cross, and then firing it in with a pot shot cross down the middle to two. You know, boom, boom, throwing the right hand down the center. She's very good at doing that and pivoting off on the counters. You know, she can get hit. Rose can get hit, and the power of Whaley is going to be a problem. But, you know, you got to have you, you got to have the route to get to the pot of gold, which is going to be the power in knocking her out. And I just think that Rose has too many smoke screens. Whaley's going to be in a house of mirrors. She's not going to be able to get the timing. She's not going to be able to find her path on that road. And eventually she's just going to keep getting pieced up by Nami Yunus on the feet. Um, I could see it going to decision, but I'm going to go with a late finish for Nami Yunus here. Like I said, I just think there's not enough time for Whaley to make as many technical adjustments in terms of offense and defense between the last fight and now. And um, I think that it's going to start off Whaley might have some good moments here and there. I do think she does have the ability to hurt Rose, but I don't think she's going to have the the um, tools to set up those shots that are going to hurt Rose. And I think she hurts her later in the fight, maybe the late third, fourth round, drops her, jumps on her back, gets the neck, gets the choke. Whaley's not going to be able to, she is not going to want to tap. She's got too much pride. She's going to go out, kind of like the Misha Tate Holly Holm at UFC 196. And uh, she hurts her on the feet with a combination, maybe a high kick. I could see her hurting her with a high kick again. Like I said, she, you know, she's been susceptible to that in the fight against Joanna. And obviously it's what finished her against Rose and uh, dropped her, take her back, sink the hooks in, 
go by, go go hand to bicep, go other hand to your opposite shoulder, lock up that choke in nighty night. So my pick is Thug Rose Namajunas to defeat Zhang Wei Li via a fourth round rear naked choke submission after hurting her on the feet and dropping her, which I believe that was my original prediction for the first fight. So I'm going to stick with that because I I could see that playing out the same way in the rematch. Um, Nobody expected it to be a KO that early. So Thug Rose Namajunas to retain her strawweight championship, go 2-0 against Zhang Wei Li with a fourth round rear naked choke submission after dropping her on the feet. All right. And now it's time for the main event of the evening for the UFC's 170-pound welterweight championship. You've got the rematch in one of the biggest grudge matches in UFC welterweight history between the champion, the reigning defending welterweight champion of the world, Kamaru, the Nigerian nightmare Usman, who comes into this fight with a record of 19 victories and one defeat, going up against the number one ranked forward pressure fighter, Colby Chaos Covington, who comes into this fight with a record of 15 victories and two defeats. Covington is coming off of a, you know, TKO technically after slamming Tyron Woodley and uh, hurting his rib, a TKO victory over Woodley. And then prior to that is when he suffered his first loss in the UFC or second loss in the UFC because he got submitted earlier in his career, but he lost to Kamado Usman at UFC 245 via a, I believe it was a fifth round TKO. Yes, a fifth round TKO. And um, Usman has fought a lot more consistently since the last time these men stepped in the cage together. It was in 2019, December of 2019. Now we're in November of 2021. So almost two years in the making. Usman has fought Gilbert Burns and Jorge Masvidal twice since then. First time at UFC 251, he won a dominant decision, but... You know, Usman or uh, Masvidal had some good work done early in the fight. First round maybe could have gone to him, but every round thereafter went to Usman. So he won that fight via dominant decision. He uh, he steps in and he fights Gilbert Burns in a fight that a lot of people thought that Burns was going to give him a lot of trouble. A lot of people picked Burns to beat Usman. You know, Burns landed a beautiful overhand right over the jab of Kamaru. He hurt him early in the fight. He got committed to the power a little bit too much. Usman's moving around. He's using a lot of fakes and feints and stutter steps, which he learned from Coach Trevor Whitman, who is obviously, he has three fighters on this card. Usman, the welterweight champion, the strawweight champion, Thug Rose, who is probably his most, that that's the student he's the closest with. That's his most worked with student is um, Rose Namajunas, I believe. The her, her and Justin Gaethje. And then, you know, against against Burns, like we said, you know, countered over the jab with the overhand right. Looked like he was going to get dropped, and or he did get dropped, but it looked like he was going to get finished. Um, he was able to move forward. He was able to switch from orthodox to southpaw and use that jab. He had a jab from orthodox, which worked very well against Burns because Burns always loops his punches. He throws overhands, hooks, and uppercuts, and drops his hands. So when you when you pop him with that fencing, that lancing jab, just bop, 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 it catches him coming in. You know, it's kind of like a, a checkmate. You come in, bop, come in, bop, come in, bop. You know, he's always catching him with the jab coming in. And Usman was able to make the reads and know that he can counter over the jab from the, the orthodox stance with the overhand right. 
But if I make a brief switch over to southpaw, now my jab is in my right hand. That's my power hand. So the jab is going to be more powerful. Now it's coming from the lead side. He cannot counter the jab with the overhand right. He can counter it with a hook to get the outside foot and then counter with a straight. But that overhand is not going to be there now since he's in southpaw. So Usman switched to southpaw, pops him with the jab, pops him with the jab, sits him down, jumps on him, lands some ground and pound and gets the TKO. I believe it was in the second round. Let me check that out for you. Usman versus Burns. Um, round three, I'm sorry. So 34 seconds into the third round, Usman started to take over in that second round. He dropped him in that second round with the jab, and the jab just continued to be a huge weapon for him. And Usman gets that third round TKO. So Masvidal times two and Gilbert Burns. Now we get the rematch with Covington. And, you know, a lot of people, since uh, since Usman has made the jump over to train with um, Trevor Whitman, since he's trained with alongside Justin Gaethje, you know, Rose Namajunas, all those people over at Trevor Whitman's gym, he's made a lot of heavy improvements to his striking. And I know a lot of people believe he's going to come in here and he's going to dominate and he's going to knock out Colby Covington. I could see it 100%. I do think that if there's a knockout here, I do think the knockout comes from the champion in Kamado Usman. Um, if it goes to decision, though, I, I don't know if I say the same because I feel like we're going to get a different chaos. I think we're going to get a different Colby Covington here. You go back and you watch the first fight, and Usman's best work was with the right hand when Covington was in southpaw. He was able to... Um, get that outside foot with the hook. He would use the check hook to get the outside foot as um, Covington was kind of on a side stance. He was sideways and it lined up that right hand down the middle. You know, right hook, right hand. Hook to get the outside foot, right hand. And he caught him a few times with it. One time hurting him seriously going into that fourth round. Um, you know, he said, I think I broke my jaw. And now he's denying it, but we never really know. Um, it hurt him. His mouth was open. You saw his jaw move all the way over to the other side. So could it have been a broken jaw? Yes, but maybe it was just a, a seriously, you know, hurt jaw. Maybe he had like locked jaw or something. I'm not 100% sure. But, you know, Usman has been a lot more active fighting three times since the last fight against Covington. Covington only fighting once, I believe, against um, here. Let's see. Against Tyron Woodley, like we talked about. But I thought he fought Lawler after the Usman fight, but I think I'm wrong there. So he knocked out um, Tyron Woodley in the fifth round, actually. So it went a lot longer than I thought with that slam takedown. But he was dominating the entire fight, winning every single round, probably 10-8s in there as well. Um, no, I was right. No, no, no. Okay, so, so he beat Robbie Lawler. Then he fights Usman. He loses to Usman. He comes back, and he beats Tyron Woodley. So now he goes in and he fights against Usman again. So one fight since their first fight for Colby and three fights since their first fight for the champion in Kamado Usman. I think that is something you have to look for when breaking down this fight stylistically and just from a statistical standpoint. When you look at the stats, here's how it goes. Um, height, six feet for Kamado Usman to 5'11 for Colby Covington. So a one-inch height advantage for Kamado 
Um, 76 inch reach for Usman to a 72 inch reach for Colby Covington. That's a four inch reach advantage for the champion in Usman. And I think he's going to look to use that reach advantage a lot. Look to you land that front kick to the body, the stabbing front kick, the teep, the front snap kick to the bread basket. Look to land those one twos up top, maybe throw the hook when, uh, Covington's in Southpaw and then throw the cross to the body. Um, he's going to look to invest a lot in the body work here because that's what he had a lot of success with in the first fight. It was the straight punches. It was the straight right hand, the straight left, but it was also the body work. Every time Covington would try to crash forward, he would land that uppercut to the body an uppercut to the body from in close. I, it, a lot of people call it a hook, but it was more like a bolo uppercut to the body. Just bop, 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 you know, and he would land that a lot. Then he would fake the one, two, and then he would throw the one-two to the body. He would throw the one-two up top. The teeps, the, the crosses, the jabs to the body, and the hooks to the body. The body work is what's going to pay dividends for him in the second fight, just like it did in the first fight because you want to slow down the gas tank of Covington. But a lot of people don't understand, you know, if, if Usman didn't get that finish, you know, maybe he would have won the round and won the fight 3-2. I had it tied up 2-2 two two going into the fifth round. Um, two rounds to Colby, two rounds to Usman, early rounds. First round for um, Covington, I believe. Second round for Usman. Third round for Usman. And then the fourth round, Covington comes back and he wins that round. So, And then obviously he got finished in the fifth. But I had it tied up. I heard some people say they had a 3-1 Covington. I wouldn't have been mad at it because he was the more active guy. He was pushing the pace a little bit more. Just Usman was a little bit more selective with his shots. He had better shot selection, but... If the opponent's throwing a lot of volume, sometimes it can, you know, make the judges judge that more because you're pushing the pace more, you're throwing more combinations, you're, you know, bringing the fight more than your opponent. So I had it tied 2-2 going into the fifth. I know some people had it 3-1 for Covington. Um, I'm not mad at either way, depending on how you judge that fight. But, you know, you look at the reach, four-inch reach advantage. Usman's going to want to use those front kicks to the body again. He's going to want to set it up with the hands, use a lot of his little brief shifts in footwork little sidestep over to the left, a little triangle step over to the right, front kick to the body, teep to the body, you know, fake the teep, one jab to the head, cross to the body, fake the fake the teep, head off the center line, level changing jab to the body. You know, he's going to want to stick the body. And if he gets into the clinch, use that overhook on the one side, use the wizard, and then throw the uppercuts to the body, throw the knees to the body, frame off on the head. He's going to have to invest in the body in this rematch just as much, if not more, as in the first fight. So four-inch reach advantage for uh, Usman, and the leg reach is identical at 41 inches. You look at win percentages, Usman's knockout percentages have gone up drastically since you know training with Trevor Whitman and making these changes. 47% uh, knockout win rate for Kamara Usman, 47% of his wins coming by way of KO, 5 by sub, and 47% via decision. For Covington, it's a little bit more skewed. 20% of wins by coming by way of KO slash TKO, 27% by submission, and 53% via decision. Um, you look at average fight time, 16 minutes, 50 seconds for Usman to 13 minutes and 54 seconds for Colby Covington. Both these guys can go long. Both these guys can make it a long, grueling fight, and that's something I expect to see from both men in this fight. Um, you know, knockdown averages per 15-minute fight. Usman's has gone up recently because he got the two knockouts back-to-back. Uh, 0.48 knockdowns per 15 minutes for Kamaru Usman to 0.1 knockdowns for Colby Chaos Covington. You look at the significant strikes, and you got 4.66 strikes landed per minute for the champion in Usman compared to 3.9 for Covington. So a little bit of an advantage for Usman, but 
basically a one, not even a complete one strike finish, one strike additional finish for um, Usman. Sorry, guys, I'm, I I apologize, but what I was saying before I had to cut it off really quick was basically a one strike, less than a one strike advantage for. Usman, so 4.66 to 3.9. So they're neck and neck in terms of strikes landed per minute. You look at the significant strike accuracy, that is where Usman has sharpened it up. He's he's sharpened up his striking, and he lands it a lot more. Um, that's 54% significant strike accuracy rate for the champion in Usman to 37% for Covington. But Covington isn't looking to be accurate. He isn't looking to... Um, I mean, he is accurate with his strikes, but he's not looking to land crisp and clean shots. He He's looking to overwhelm you with pace. He's looking to overwhelm you with pressure. Put three, four, five, six punch combinations in your face, throw a kick to the body, throw a knee, and then shoot a takedown, which is something we didn't get at all in the first fight. We got literally no wrestling in their first fight. He looks at strikes absorbed per minute. It's neck and neck. 2.33 strikes absorbed per minute for the champion in Usman to 2.35 for Colby Chaos Covington. You look at defense, 58% striking defense for Usman to 56 for Covington. So yes, Covington doesn't look like he has good defense, but he's better defensively on the feet than Usman. He's got better head movement. He's better at slipping his head off the center line. When Usman throws his strikes, when Usman throws his punches, his head is almost always going to be on that center line. He's throwing the one-two, throwing the one-two, throwing the one-two, throwing the cross, throwing the jab, but he never really moves his head off the center line. Every once in a while, yes, he will. He'll move his feet like he did when he did drop Covington in their fight. He was able to get off on that brief angle, using that hook to cut that angle and get the outside foot and then throw the cross down the center. But... You know, overall, I think Covington doesn't get enough credit for how good his striking is. And yes, I know Usman has made hefty, hefty improvements. He's getting knockouts in his career. Knocked out Jorge Masvidal, who had never been knocked out before in his entire career. That is something you have to take into account. But you also have to look at the fact that when Usman starts getting confident in his striking and he goes to throw more than two punches, maybe he throws a three-punch combo, a four-punch combo, he does go back to that tendency to loop with the hooks, to loop with the overhands, to loop with the uppercuts. And Colby Covington is now training over at MMA Masters, where um, Miguel Baeza is at. Um, uh, Ricardo Lamas is over there at MMA Masters. There's, hold on, let's see, MMA Masters. Because there was a lot of good fighters over there when I looked. MMA Masters team. It's over in Miami, Florida. Here, let's see. Here we go. Yeah, so it's over in Miami, Florida, and some of the main fighters from there, you got Anthony Rocco Martin, you got Nate Landwehr, you got uh, Ricardo Lamas, you've got Miguel Baeza, you've got Ilya Taporia, who's, you know, that undefeated prospect at 135 pounds. You know, like I said, you got my Miguel Baeza, you've got Frank Carrillo, you've got a lot of good fighters that train out of, out of that gym. Mo, you know, most beneficial for Colby, I would say, is probably, you know, I know they can't train together because they're not in the same weight class, but Ilya Taporia, I think, would have been a decent training partner for him going into this fight in terms of the striking, to get his striking up to par, to get his defense better, which is something he said he worked on in the countdown show. He said he worked on his head movement. He worked on slipping off the center line, getting his hands up, and not being in the way of a lot of the strikes. Usman doesn't move his head. Maybe that's something we'll see in this fight is him moving his head. 
off the center line more. I could see it. I do think he can make those adjustments. But we didn't see any wrestling in the first fight. And if anybody's going to wrestle here, I think it's going to be Colby. I think he was a Division One wrestler. Kamara was Division Two. They're both phenomenal wrestlers. I think Usman definitely is more powerful with his takedowns, but he still has beautiful wrestling. But pairing Colby's wild one, two, three, four, five, six strikes, kick to the body, jab, cross, hook, cross, kick to the body, flying knee, close the distance, go for takedowns, go for the body lock, go for, you know, working the opponent up against the cage, draining their energy. I think that the wrestling in this fight is going to be in more in the favor of the challenger in Covington because I think that Usman is getting a little bit overconfident in his striking. Does he have every right to be confident in his striking? Yes, he knocked out Mosfidal, who's never been knocked out before. He dropped Gilbert Burns with a jab and knocked him out, but Gilbert Burns has been knocked out at 155 pounds. This was a rejuvenated Gilbert Burns, and he didn't have to cut the weight, obviously, because he's up at 170. He did knock him out, but he has been knocked out before. And, you know, with Masvidal, he's never been knocked out. It was a beautiful one to a right hand, you know, using the left hook to negate the power in the cross that uh, Masvidal was going to try to use to set up the check hook. And then he slipped inside of the check hook and landed the right hand right on the chin, dropped him, jumped on him, and finished him off. Usman has power in his right hand. Usman has a lot of power in his jab. I expect Usman <coughs> excuse me, to fight primarily out of an orthodox stance. Colby most likely is going to stay in southpaw. I think uh, I think Colby's going to resort to the wrestling a lot more in this fight, and I think that's something that people are kind of forgetting. You know, I think Colby can push the pace with the wrestling better than Usman can for five rounds. We didn't we don't see him wrestle much anymore. I mean, yes, he does, but he does like the striking a lot. And I think him falling in love with his striking in this fight and wanting to knock Colby out is going to really play into the game of Colby Chaos Covington. And I think that, you know, you saw in the first fight, Colby can strike with Usman. I don't know if he can as much now because Usman has tightened up his striking. He's sharpened it up. He looks a lot better on the feet now that he's training alongside Trevor Whitman. I think his striking is going to look better and better each fight. But he still falls back on those tendencies when he goes into those combinations. When he falls into that brawl and wanting to knock the opponent out, he still has those tendencies to loop his punches a little bit more. You know, Usman is going to stay is going to is going to stay calm. He's going to try to throw that teep to the body. He's going to try to try to throw the jab to the body. Switch southpaw. Level change jab to the body, jab up top. You know, he's going to constantly try to switch stances. I think we're going to see Colby mainly stay in orthodox, maybe, or mainly stay in southpaw. Maybe he switches into orthodox and uses like a trip style takedown to uh, get Usman to defend. And then I think he can pepper him up against the cage, push him against the fence, pepper, 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 go in for a takedown, break off, and then land some strikes off the break and just land his combinations. <sighs> It's a tough fight. Originally, I was going with Usman via KO. I 100% can see it. If anybody's picking that, I don't doubt you. Um, I could be a complete idiot for making this pick, but there's something telling me that Colby Covington's going to get it done this weekend. There's something telling me that Covington's going to get it done. Let's look at the grappling you know, stats really quick. 3.22 takedowns per 15 minute for Usman to 5.69. So almost a three takedown advantage per 15 minute fight for the challenger in Covington. Takedown accuracy, 47% for Usman to 51%. 
for Covington. 100% takedown defense for Usman. He's never been taken down before. If anybody's going to do it, it's Colby. Colby's got a 78% takedown defense rate. I do think Usman can take him down just as much. Um, but I do think that we're going to see a more he- wrestling-heavy game plan from the challenger in Covington. Um, submission average, it really doesn't make any, doesn't, you know, matter in this fight when breaking it down. But overall, I think Colby Covington gets the job done via decision. I think he banks three out of the five rounds. I think it's a 48, 47 split decision. No, unanimous. I'm going to go unanimous 48, 47 unanimous decision for the number one ranked Colby chaos Covington, um, and new. I think that Usman is very, very high on his striking right now. I think he's going to want to come into this fight and knock Colby's head off. And I think with the improvements that we have to believe or should believe or are are made to believe that Covington has made, he looked good in the striking in the first fight anyway. I think if he uses his head movement, uses the strikes to the body, uses the teeps that... Um, If he uses just punches, kicks, you know, and sets up his takedowns with his punches, sets up his punches with the takedown attempts, and just keeps up that pace and pressure, I think that he can win this decision. So 48-47, unanimous decision victory for Colby Chaos Covington to become the new UFC welterweight champion. All right, guys, that's it for my predictions for UFC 268. That fight obviously takes place tomorrow, November 6th, from Madison Square Garden in New York City. A triple header, the debut of a glory world champion who knocked out Israel Adesanya. Bangers upon bangers between Bobby Green and Ally Quinta and uh, Shane Burgos and Billy Quarantillo. All that and more. Violence personified with Gaethje versus Chandler. This is a card you do not want to miss. You can listen to my podcast anywhere podcasts are available. That includes Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Anchor, Stitcher, Breaker, and many, many more. Please leave a review for this podcast on Apple Podcasts. Any review you can leave helps. Please leave a five-star review. You can donate to my podcast through the link in my bio on my Instagram and also through PayPal if you PayPal. Um, I think the link to the PayPal is on the link in my bio on my Instagram. Um, thank you guys so much for listening. I'm your host, Double M, and I'm out. And, and please, please enjoy the fights this weekend.